Hey, welcome world travelers and fellow adventurers to the Tales of a Traveler podcast. It's me, your host, Stacey Utek. My greatest joy is traveling and exploring the world with people that I love. I have been to 63 countries and have a bunch of stories to share with you. So thanks so much for joining me as I venture down memory lane and share with you the tales of my adventures from around the world. Okay, let me set the stage where I am and what I'm doing. Hi, by the way. Um, Love you all. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, So I drove to my sister's in Virginia and my parents are here and we were just sitting around the lunch table. I mean, I'm, I'm about to hit the road, but we are sitting around the lunch table and I said, we need to record a podcast together and I'll tell you why. The reason is because my brother-in-law and my sister were at one time missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And me and my parents both met them there at one point, and we had like family Christmas together in Papua New Guinea. So we're all just kind of sitting around here. And Alyssa, to my left, was born there. And Caitlin, to my right, was not, but she was an idea of the Lord's at the time. Um, she wasn't in existence yet, but we all have a connection to Papua New Guinea in some way. So I'm just going to, we want to share a couple stories, and I want to introduce you to my family a little bit more, and so you can hear about their experience. So I'm going to, pa- we're just going to be passing this phone around, because that's what we're recording it on. So welcome to our family dinner. You guys just pull up a chair. You're, you're welcome here with the Utex and the Shaneleys. All right, so I'm going to pass the phone to Travis, and Travis is going to talk about Papua New Guinea, like how they ended up there, what he was doing there, and just kind of set the stage for, yeah, why he and my sister went there in the first place. Yeah, so Papua New Guinea came on my radar because I had a grandfather who lived and worked there for uh, many years. And growing up, I had the interest of both my grandparents of one grandfather was a pilot. The other grandfather was the missionary in Papua New Guinea. So ever since I was young, I wanted to be a missionary pilot. So I went to school, Moody Aviation for missionary aviation, and uh, met my wife Jennifer there. And so we headed over to Papua New Guinea, and our mission there was to support Bible translation. Um, We went into uh, areas that uh, never had a language written uh, in their own tongue ever, and so a missionary would spend many, many years in there trying to figure out how to take sounds that they've never heard, make it make meaning to them, and then create an alphabet create an education system and teach the people how to read and write, and then eventually teach them how to read their own Bibles that would be provided uh, for them through the mission. So we went there, and I went there to, uh, to help uh, support that Bible translation. We also supported the local uh, people by um, providing medevacs, and if they had medical needs, we'd go into there and take them to areas where they could get medical help. And um, we also provided some commercial services. A lot of places could not get any economic help because it was such rugged terrain that we needed to fly coffee and trade goods store items in and out with the the airplane. And uh, so that was the main goals of what we did uh, with the mission and with the airplane uh, supporting the mission. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to pass the phone over the gingerbread houses to my sister now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jenny. So my sister said that I should tell you a little bit about our orientation. So going into the country, 
we didn't know the language. And so what they do is give you an orientation course where you get immersed in the culture. And part of that course was to live for five weeks in a village with families around you and nobody who knows English potentially. And it just really got you immersed in the culture and speaking the language. So Papua New Guinea has many languages, but they have one trade language that everyone knows, um, or pretty much, yeah, I would say probably everyone knows the trade language. And so that's what we learned to speak, which was pretty simple. It had some English type words in it, but they were just a little different. Like if I would say, my name is Jennifer, I'd say name belong me, Jennifer. So, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit like English. So it wasn't too complicated, but it was still different enough that it was helpful to go to a village and, and speak it. So, yeah, so the village was pretty um, basic. They had just huts that they would build out of bamboo and other grass type uh, plants and things. But we had our very own house that they let us stay in. There were no other missionary families right there in that village. Um, and so we had our village house and our own outhouse that we could use. But we just mainly um, spent time with the people, talking with them, living life with them. We would go to the market with them while they sold their vegetables and kind of watch how that was done. We went to their gardens. Um, we just talked a lot. They're very much people who enjoy telling stories and just very relational people. Um, I remember the first night, the biggest thing was that we were trying to get some fresh, clean water because the water that they would give you or that you could find may not be that clean for drinking. And we didn't want to have to boil all of our water. So my husband was very resourceful and, and um, got this um, rainwater catching contraption together with a tarp and um, a, a bucket underneath and it rained it poured rain that whole first night and we just spent the whole night collecting clean water and putting it in our house and then after that for the rest of the time we were there it barely rained at all so God really provided all that clean water for us which was amazing and we just enjoyed getting to know the people it was a blessing to be there they're very relational and uh, loving people. So that was great and really helped us to learn the language. And then we moved to our mission center, which was in the center of the country. And while we were there, I helped out at the missionary kids school and, um, yeah, basically did that while my husband flew. So, Do you want to talk about how you had a, so, a child? Yeah. Well, halfway into our time of Papua New Guinea, we left to have Alyssa in Australia, which was super fun. Um, the the healthcare in Papua New Guinea is very poor, so they did ask us either to go back to our home country or to go to Australia, but Australia was very close and um, easier to get there and back quickly, so we chose to do that, and yes, we were blessed with a little girl, and she spent about a year and a half of her life in Papua New Guinea. Unfortunately, she doesn't remember it, but it has her claim to fame to have been born in Australia. Yeah, Alyssa, how do you feel about not having dual citizenship in Australia and America? Does it make you sad? Well, yeah, <laughs> a little bit, but I mean, I have a great birth certificate in my room to prove I was oh, you, born there. Oh, you have your Australian birth certificate? Yes. That's so cool. Yeah, so apparently, I guess Australia doesn't grant dual citizenship. She's kind of an Aussie. Yes. I was projecting onto you how I would feel. I would just, I would feel sad if I didn't, but maybe you don't care. But that's really awesome. You have it in your room? Yes. Very cool. Do you want to say anything about Pop, what you remember from Papua New Guinea? All the things? <laughs> well, I don't remember anything, but I've been told 
that we had a dog that they were looking after, my parents were looking after, and they that the dog actually helped me walk <gasps> or learn how to walk. Oh, really? Yeah, that's... So, what was her name? Velvet, right? Yes. You know what? Did I ever... T- I told you guys the crazy story. So I was an RD at Malone, like, I don't know, a few years ago, and I had a student who was an, uh, who lived, grew up in Papua New Guinea on, in, on the base that you guys did. And she was the one who named your dog. <coughs> yeah. She's like, we somehow figured out that she had that dog and then the dog got passed on to a couple different families, probably. Right. And then to your family. And so what a small world. Well, um, that's, yeah. Thanks for sharing those things. We're going to kind of share a couple more stories, but I kind of, Oh, actually I'm going to pass it back to Travis and then I'll tell you about, you know, me and my mom and dad going to visit. But I asked Travis to just share a couple of stories that he remembers of flying, um, maybe a dangerous flight, a situation, or like uh, something that stands out in his mind as exciting or felt meaningful. So I'm going to pass it back to Travis. I think one of the most amazing parts working and living over there is just seeing how the hand of God would protect us in many dangerous situations and a lot of times in the United States, we have a lot of uh, tools and equipment and technology that help us to fly in a safe way. And uh, over there, none of those technologies really exist at the same level <clears throat> that we have uh, in the United States and more developed countries. So I have two real quick stories. And uh, the first one was, um, it was amazing because what was happening was there was a a hurricane system that was sitting between Papua New Guinea and Australia, creating lots and lots of weather. And that was very unusual. Uh, Usually we would have uh, little pockets of weather and we'd be in the clouds for just a few minutes and then it would be all uh, finished and we'd be back in clear uh, blue skies again. This particular day I spent uh, over an hour in the clouds and I knew that I was in a different situation than I normally had been and actually have never experienced anything like that in the country uh, to be in the clouds that long. Um, so I called ahead uh, to the to the airstrip that I was uh, planning to go to and asked what the weather was. And, <clears throat> and he told me that it was in the local language, it was sunny and the winds were calm and it was good to come. So I just kept, kept on going, still in the clouds, uh, still in the rain and the weather and uh, couldn't see the ground or anything. So I had to make a decision about 100 miles away uh, whether I was going to continue on to this airstrip or go to another airstrip that uh, I knew had uh, better weather and would get more fuel for the airplane. And so at the 100-mile mark uh, to landing there, I called up again and asked the weather from the local village guy giving me the weather at the destination airport. And uh, he once again told me the weather was blue skies and calm winds. So, well, who's not going to continue on with that weather report? Uh, there's no reason not to. So I knew I would be at my minimum fuel over the airstrip and uh, <clears throat> and be, should be able to land with that uh, weather report. Um, there was a ridge, a uh, mountain ridge that happened right before the uh, airstrip and that mountain ridge often held weather and would clear up past it. So I thought, well, that must be what's happening. It's sitting on the ridge and after I get over that ridge, we'll be uh, in the clear. Well, I got over that ridge and then past the ridge and I was still in the clouds. In fact, I got to the point where um, 
this airstrip, which was situated on the side of a volcano about a quarter of the way up, um, was completely covered in clouds and I couldn't see it. So I flew past it a little bit. I knew about a second airstrip just up the valley a little bit and uh, give a give a look there. And that one was covered in clouds as well. Mm-hmm. While I'm making that trek to that second strip, I called up the the weather guy or the uh, local guy who was giving me the weather reports and um, asked what the weather was again. And he told me again it was clear and um, there was no no issues. And so I said, well, I flew over the airstrip and uh, I couldn't see it. And he's like, oh, well, there's a big change now. Uh, actually, the clouds are down inside the trees and it's blowing. Lots of grass is blowing over um, and it doesn't I can't even see the end of the strip, um, airstrip where you would land. So I knew I was in a, a bit of trouble at this point. Um, so I uh, called back to my home base, um, asked for any advice, any ideas that people would have, uh, airstrips that maybe I didn't think of that was close, bu- close enough with the amount of fuel I had, which wasn't much fuel at all. Um, we're getting close to maybe... Uh, just a little bit more than a half hour of fuel at this point. So <clears throat> I, uh, no one had any ideas. I knew they weren't going to suggest anything. So I made two points on the river. Uh, at the bottom of this airstrip, there was a, a river going uh, across the bottom and about, uh, oh, maybe three or 400 feet below the airstrip. And um, uh, told the uh, people back at the home base that you you need to do a search and rescue between these two points, that's where I'll, you know, essentially uh, fly the airplane into the trees, into the river, and bail uh, somewhere in the river. <clears throat> so, and I had a full airplane. I was full of uh, both women and children and, and men. Um, had seven people in the back. And so I started flying back and forth uh, across the two points that I gave them and uh, just started descending. And I got to the height of the airstrip and still saw nothing descended even four. I got down to 200 feet below the airstrip, um, and still didn't see anything. And then all of a sudden I, a couple hundred more feet, um, down, I started seeing trees rushing past the wings. And so was able to start moving over and trying to find the air, the the river and, uh, found the river. And, uh, just as I kind of let down low enough, um, I could look up and just see a very, very, very thin band uh, be- of cloud between the trees and the clouds. But it was probably only about 10 feet um, of a width between the tops of the trees and the clouds. And some trees were up into the clouds. So um, I decided to to uh, make one try towards the airstrip between that gap uh, when I turned around and uh, radioed back, told them that I was making an attempt to their strip that they would have to look, create a new line of, of search if, if I couldn't make it. And, uh, well, I'm here telling this story. So obviously, you know, this, uh, turns out good. And I did find the strip, but I was so low that I couldn't even bank or, uh, the airplane because I was afraid that the wingtip would go into a tree, um, at any point and, uh, was able to, once I got to the cut out of the airstrip, was able to turn the airplane and, and landed on the strip. So that was just one time where the the Lord provided, um, you know, just um, 
uh, way for, for me to be safe and land the airplane and all the people on, on the airplane. And, uh, that was, that, that alone was a mini miracle. Uh, the second one was also an amazing miracle and, uh, just saw such a direct hand of the Lord, um, providing in that one. And, I mentioned before in the intro how we would uh, fly commercial uh, coffee, and we wouldn't go very far to do coffee. Um, we'd carry minimal fuel so we could get as much coffee in the airplane as we could. And in this particular day, I was coming out of the airstrip, um, coming back to home base, and living in a tropical situation. In a moment's notice, you could get just these huge thunderstorms and amounts of rain that is um, just huge amounts of downpour, hard to see. And um, so this particular day, I had the uh, home base in sight, but uh, before I got there, uh, this storm let loose and I couldn't see anything. And I kept descending, descending. Um, I could see maybe one house over the center and I couldn't see the airstrip. And the airstrip had a had a mountain or a hill right off the end and I knew I didn't want to get near there. Uh, that would be um, a dangerous situation. So I knew I was safe over top of the center where the houses were, that there was nothing to hit there. Um, so I just went uh, full power and was going to back, you know, go and, and land in a valley uh, that was over on the other side of the uh, the airstrip. And, um, and just as soon as I went full power, I just kind of prayed out loud. I said, oh, Lord, help me. And uh, when I did that, I looked out my uh my wing and i had a complete um cleared tunnel in the rain where i could see straight down to the airstrip through the tunnel i couldn't see left i couldn't see right all i had was a clear perfect tunnel to the end of the airstrip and uh so i flew through that landed and as soon as i touched down it all came back down on me again and um so it was just amazing to see the Lord's hand in that. And uh, what was even more amazing was to uh, <clears throat> the next morning or next day at church, someone, the pastor asked, you know, did anyone hear that airplane above the center the, this week? And, uh, and he said, just curious, how many people prayed when that, when that airplane flew over? And so <clears throat> it was amazing to see half the congregation raise their hands, you know, <clears throat> and be a, be praying for us. So it's really important to pray for your missionaries. It's needed. Wow. Whoa. Everyone gets a lot, has a little tears in their eyes around the table. That's an amazing story. Thanks, Travis, for sharing those. I don't think I have ever heard those stories. So thanks for sharing. It's incredible. Um, I feel like I don't know how to top any of those, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> um, what's really cool is, so my sister and her husband and Alyssa were um, in Papua New Guinea. Oh gosh, how many, when did you guys move there? 2005 to 2005. Okay, so in 2007, I went on the world race, which you've heard in a previous episode. And then at the end of my time, I spent another month traveling around Asia um, with my friends, John and Eric. And the purpose of that was then to meet my parents in Papua New Guinea and Jenny and Travis and Alyssa for Christmas and meet my first niece. No, 
Second niece. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Hannah. Love you, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> She'll be so offended. I've said that. Uh, first niece. On the Shingley side. On the Shingley side. That's what I meant. Um, and uh, my parents, oh, gosh, you guys had never really traveled internationally, had you? You'd gone yeah. on a cruise. Yeah. But this was like their first. I mean, it was a long trip for them to take. And I remembered getting there a day before them. And um, uh, Travis was going to come pick us up. But... Um, yeah, they they flew in and I got to the hotel a night before them. And so I made sure to get like ice water in their room and a fan because I knew how important mm-hmm. that'd be. And then I remember, I'll never forget going to the airport and I hadn't seen my parents in over a year. And so, and I'd just been all around the world. And so it was a really sweet reunion, really mm-hmm. sweet to be together. And mm-hmm. um, I'll never forget, mom, I love this story. I'm sorry, I have to tell it. But we went to the restaurant that night in the hotel and we got our salads and there was no salad dressing. And mom said, do you guys have any salad dressing? And they're like, they didn't know what that was. And then I, she's like, you guys have like ranch or Thousand Island? And I'm like, mom, this is not the Applebee's. <laughs> like we're in, we're in Papua New Guinea. And so they ended up bringing her like ketchup and mayonnaise and she mixed it together and put it on her salad. Do you remember that, mom? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that. And we also have some other funny dinner stories. I think we all went out for dinner one night and they didn't have enough glasses. So they went out and bought like, drinking glasses but our dinner took like i don't know it was an hour an hour and a half we were waiting and then there were still tags on the glasses when we got them yeah but um yeah i mean i just will never forget i'd i'd been all around the world but i'd never seen a country so underdeveloped like it's just jungle like just junk maybe how many big cities do you have did you guys have there like three major i mean when you say city we're not talking about like chicago you know it's like very very underdeveloped but it was really sweet in that way just so untouched and yeah, so many different locals and tribes all around that country. And the translation work, again, incredible stuff that they were doing and are doing now. But to go back to just say it was really fun for me and my parents to join their family for Christmas that year. So, um, Caitlin, before I pass this over, do you want to say anything? I'm just really grateful that my dad is still alive throughout those airplane catastrophes. Right? (laughs) I think we're all thankful for that. Um, okay, so I was just going to ask mom and both my mom and dad what their favorite memories of their time in Papua New Guinea were. So whoever wants to go first. Okay, <clears throat> I'm the mom. I'm the mom to Jennifer and Stacy, And I also have two sons. But they weren't involved in the trip to Papua New Guinea. Um, one of my most special memories when we were there like Stacy said, we went there for Christmas, so we actually spent Christmas Day there. But prior to that, in that week ahead of Christmas, um, Jenny said that we were in, going to go to a Christmas banquet. And it was a very unusual Christmas banquet in that um, it was going to be served by the students in the school. And... We had to bring all our own tableware, our own tablecloths, silverware, serving dishes, whatever, and set a table and a centerpiece as well. And everybody's table, of course, was different and was so lovely. Um, It's just such a unique idea that they did that. And then to have the students serving the meals. But at the end of the night... um, we were each supposed to bring a gift exchange, 
but as we've said before, this is a very underdeveloped country, and there aren't stores where you can go out and buy gifts. So pretty much everybody made their own gifts. There were such lovely things there, and I remember um, there was a clock that had been fashioned from wood, and we received that. It was the shape of Papua New Guinea. And my daughter made her famous caramel uh, caramel rolls, <clears throat> caramel pecan rolls, I should say, and they were a big hit. So it was just a real blessing to be there, to see people with next to nothing making something very special out of the Christmas season. Well, I'm the dad of Stacy and Jenny, and I... Uh had the opportunity, uh, Travis uh, came up to me and said, would you like to go on a flight uh, to deliver what was going to be a, a sawmill, which consisted basically of a bandsaw blade and a gas generator to run it. And uh, it was going to be delivered to a tribe that had a missionary who had come to them 25 years earlier and translated the Bible and spent his entire, pretty much a lot, most of his life there um, bringing them the Bible, and wrote a book about it. And I had a chance to read that book before I had gone out to see this. And so it was really uh, something that was very unique and unusual and, and uh, quite an adventure to really go with them. So we flew out there. It was quite a ways, um, I don't know, 45 minutes in the air or so, something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, landed, and, and I was just so impressed by the tribe that came up to us, and they were so excited about this sawmill and I can remember one of the guys just grabbed the, the gas generator, put it on his shoulder, and just carried it away like nothing. Uh, it was pretty amazing. And and then the missionary had come back. I think he was from uh, Canada, Washington. Washington State. Okay, and uh, and he came back just for this event, and uh, so he had gave us a tour of the little tiny room uh, built off the almost off the side of the cliff where the Bible translation occurred, taking a group of young boys, and by the time the Bible was done, they were already they had grown up to be men. But um, uh, as we left, um, I just felt compelled to give the pastor something who was there, the, 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 uh, the tribe pastor of the church there. And so I had a Promise Keeper hat that I had bought at the Promise Keeper event, and, and it was a nice white hat. <laughs> it said Promise Keepers on it. And I said, you know, I just want to give this to the pastor. And so uh, I'm hoping he's still wearing it. Today. <laughs> like, a, like a baseball cap kind of thing. But anyway, it was just uh, really probably something I'll never, ever forget. It was really amazing. Wow. And I just want to share one more memory I had because as a family, we all went to the coast for a few days, Medang. It's like one of the other cities, but it's beautiful. It's around the ocean. Dad and I went snorkeling and Travis too. And it's just some of the best diving really in the world. Divers come from all over the world to, to dive here because the coral reefs are just incredible. Um, but I'm, I'll never forget the drive there. It was probably how long? Like five hours? Yeah. something like that just dirt bumpy roads and Alyssa was just teeny tiny baby and it's not like there's kids seats or anything we just kind of held her on her laps in the back seat I remember me mom and dad just kept passing her maybe Jenny was in the back yeah, yeah. and we just would pass her and just sit with her and you did such a good job you I don't remember even crying she was just like a 
you could tell she was an international baby. <laughs> she just, she just was so adaptable and so good. Um, so yeah, we just, yeah, we had the best time and it just was so special again to be as a family together. And then I've always loved and admired the work that you guys did there and the time that you spent there. And so anyway, anybody want to share any last memories that popped up in their heads? Wow. What a delight. Okay. Well, thank you, Shaylee's. Thank you, mom and dad for being on my podcast and we'll see you guys next time.